Radical, episode 205. Welcome to Radical, ladies and gents. My name is Shane Hazel, your host. Thank you guys for being here. I've got uh, part three of Bitcoin is not democratic for you guys today. This uh, this one is the uh, part that explores a lot of the very, I guess, foundational type of uh, building blocks that are necessary uh, for civilization uh, that transcends politics. So this is good. It's gonna. It's it's one of those that uh, kind of drifts into a a primer, which I'll kind of talk about at the end of the show, just a little bit. Um, I got to tell you, I'm gonna try to get you guys one more of these this week. It'll be part four, and I don't think part five has actually been released yet, um, and maybe for a good reason because my voice just can't take it. Uh, Forty plus minutes of you know going and and reading this kind of stuff out loud plus. Uh, interviews and everything else that I'm doing. Um, it's just, it's got my, my voice kind of worn out. My, my voice is starting to feel like my back. No, I'm just um, but at any rate, uh, I have, uh, I do have some comments on what I think, uh, you know, society is going to look like as it evolves out of this. And I'll kind of save that for, uh, the end of the show, but, uh, we'll, we'll get into this about 45 minutes worth of a read. Great article again, um, you know, obviously there are some things that uh, Mr. Svetsky is going to talk about that I don't necessarily fully agree with, but at the same time, um, like I said, you know, there are, it, it's just more or less a, in a, a matter of uh, opinion at this point about, you know, what the future holds on a Bitcoin standard. But without further ado, Bitcoin is not democratic. Part three, the separation of economy and politics. Part three of Bitcoin is not democratic series explores the building blocks necessary to construct a civilization that transcends politics. Alexander Svetsky, March 4th, 2022. If you still happen to think Bitcoin and democracy are somehow related, then you're either willfully ignorant or you've missed parts one and two of this series. In which case, please read them here and here first. You will understand exactly why tyranny prevails in the democratic state of Canada, led by its once again and recently democratically elected Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who is supported by an entire swath of people incapable of critical thinking. See hashtag stand with Trudeau. Relationships with anyone involved in the illegal blockades and report to the RCMP or CSIS. As of today, a bank or other financial service provider will be able to immediately freeze or suspend an account without a court order. Headline, Trudeau gives banks power to freeze funds without court order in bid to choke off protest funding. New powers give institutions the ability to freeze corporate accounts and cancel insurance tied to trucks that are being used in the blockades. Robert Schechter, February 14th, 2022 Financial Post. But if you've been following and have come to your own internal dismantling of the idea of democracy and viscerally severed its relationship to Bitcoin, let's explore what a world beyond political order on a Bitcoin standard may look like. By no means do I have any idea how any of it will play out long term, but I'll do my best to inspire thought experiments across topics such as the law autonomy, values, virtues, capital creation, violence, methods of organization, and their scalability. The Separation of Economy and Politics Much has been discussed on Bitcoin's separation of money and state. I've personally done so in detail in my 2019 article, Rise of the Individual, Fall of the State. Today I posit a potentially greater separation, the separation of economics and politics. Bitcoin Magazine hosted a debate between Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation and myself almost two months ago when the first part of the series came out. During the discussion, we built some common ground on the historical connection between economic and political power. Attaining one opens doors to obtaining the other, and, in the self-reinforcing cycle, concentrates each. We agreed that Bitcoin fixes this but I'm not sure the gravity of that truth is appreciated deeply enough. Separating economics and politics may just be the most important socio-evolutionary step our species has made in a millennia. In a world where economic primitives can be influenced by politics, 
both economics and politics will be corrupted. Their corruption will last until reality catches up, forcing both economy and politics to collapse, resulting in the emergence of a new order, closer once again to the truth. The cycle then repeats. Now, in a world where politics is subject to economic primitives that cannot by any means be changed, altered, or manipulated by one player for their own advantage and subsequent disadvantage of others, we have accountability, and not the kind of long-term cycle accountability experienced by the fall of corrupt institutions such as the Roman Empire, the Catholic Church, or the modern state. I mean fast, direct, clear accountability due to high-fidelity feedback loops which occur as a result of there being no means by which to socialize mistakes, losses, or poor economic behavior, such as taxation, unhinged debt, monetary inflation. This sort of rapid adaptation has profound long-term implications for the very fitness of our species. When we lie to ourselves and have no link between economic reality and political method, we structure societal incentives in a way that morphs us into unfit, slow, weak, cheap, pathetic, sinful, and immoral subhumans. These errors catch up with us on a long enough time scale, but because time preference is so high, nobody actually gives a shit when it matters. This is why Bitcoin is so important. By reintroducing economic consequence, it makes it so that no amount of politics can ever again make us all blind men without purpose. Note that none of this means we do away with politics, or economics for that matter. Some people are delusional enough to think that we'll one day transcend economics as if the product of one's labor and intersubjective value will disappear. Those same people also believe in leprechauns and metaverse as progress. What I'm talking about is something far more practical. The separation of economics and politics means the placing of politics on a short economic leash. People and the groups they form will always have their own politics. What matters is whether or not they pay for their own mistakes and reap their own rewards. By fusing economics and physics, Bitcoin orients the train tracks themselves, economics, in such a way that we do not fly off the edge of a cliff no matter the train, politics, or conductor, leader. Power, work, and morality. The concentration of power is not necessarily a bad thing. It's agnostic and often useful. It's only when power is combined with hubris or stupidity that it becomes evil, and when evil can concentrate, we quickly discover hell. This hybrid of power, stupidity, and hubris runs naturally rampant in politics because it lives in a vacuum of economic feedback. How can accurate, intelligent value judgments be made when you're ignorant of the feedback of your environment? You're like a blind, deaf man flying a plane. This is why the concentration of political power and its use in attaining economic power always devolves into coercive means or transgressions on private property. By definition, it has to. The more rights that emerge as a function of the ever-expanding politics, this is, in fact, what politics boils down to. The more plunder of the responsible's party time, energy, and resources must occur in order to balance the equation. Hence, Alexander Svetsky's first maxim of political order. You cannot escape reality, but you can obfuscate it long enough to pick someone's pocket. As Frederick Bastiat pointed out, labor requires an expense of energy and time. If I can acquire wealth or resources without work, i.e. a lottery, or through confiscation, whether direct or through some elaborate scheme, democracy, proof of stake in cryptocurrencies, etc., then it is relatively clear which I will generally choose. Show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. Trust me, I get it. We all want free things. Work is hard. Why work when it's so easy to just take? The answer is simple. Morality. 1. Morality is work-infused and anti-anthropic behavior. 2. Morality and time preference are fundamentally linked. Morality aligns with natural order, and moral behavior results in a higher probability of long-term prosperity. It's not just about what you can get now but about what you can together produce over the long term. 
This is why collaboration and the economic means always trump coercion and the political means on a longer time scale. Morality is more robust and wins out over stupidity, gluttony, and unhinged greed. I've studied how philosophies, constitutions, and entire religions have formed not because God told them morality was better, but because their founders and prophets sought the best meta to live by. When the principles of the moral meta, the way, are skewed or discarded, which occurs in the process of its institutionalization, short-termisms set in and we fool ourselves into thinking we can be immoral because God is not watching. Little do we realize that God is the outcome. God is in the behavior. God is in the labor. God is in the meta. We are so comfortable eating the fruits of labor that came from the adherence to prior morality that we only realize we fucked up when it's too late. Hence why continual taking is possible on a short enough timescale in a sufficiently wealthy and complex society. Entropy always catches up and forces the system to either correct, adopt morality, or fail. Therefore, my second maxim of political order, whilst you can obfuscate reality long enough to pick someone's pocket, soon enough there are no more pockets left to pick, and we all suffer. This is why Bitcoin's relationship to work is such a significant part of its constitution. If energy is the universal currency, then work is one of the universal laws of economics. It cannot be simulated, counterfeit, or faked, and because its existence, or lack thereof, results in immediate feedback on a Bitcoin standard, the incentive is to adopt morality as a means to wealth, power, and prosperity. Innate human drives we should never seek to remote, lest we want to end the human race. Work is economic. Stake is political. One is reality-oriented. The other is opinion-oriented. One adapts the map to reality. The other is attempting to mold reality to the map. The long-term liberty and prosperity of the human race depends on the separation of economy and politics. This is why we Bitcoin. Enlightenment Values the Age of Enlightenment, a.k.a. the Age of Reason, was an intellectual and philosophical movement spawned in the 15th and 16th centuries with the Renaissance and went on to dominate Europe during the 17th and 18th centuries. The ideas and values that emerged during that period transformed the world and laid the foundation for the preeminence and greatness of the original West. Some of the ideas, values, and virtues included sovereignty of the individual, freedom of speech, freedom of association, private property rights, pursuit of knowledge, separation of church and state, reason and science, right to defend oneself, freedom of belief of and from religion. The great thinkers of the West came to realize that the atomic constituent of society was the individual and that he and his private property must be held sacred above all. They realized that in order for truth to be discovered, these sovereign individuals must be free to speak, free to explore ideas, free to challenge each other, and as such, either correct their errors or build upon the principles and ideas found to be true. They sought the development of a responsible and robust society whose members had the capacity to defend themselves and to voluntarily organize around causes, ideas, beliefs, or philosophies they personally valued. The Founding Fathers made significant attempts to encode these values into what has been the greatest political constitution to date, in particular the First and Second Amendments, and from that emerged the greatest economic and political power since the dawn of time. Unfortunately, the values the West was built upon, and the constitutions designed to uphold them have all but vanished under the banners of collectivism, politics, rights, dependencies, entitlements, compliance, and dogmatic obedience to representative government overlords. The heroes whose shoulders we stand on are rolling in their graves right about now. As a result, and for the sake of our future generations, the time has come for a new constitution, one that is not rooted in politics or paper, but in economics and energy. Bitcoin is a voluntary digital constitution which operates in accordance with natural laws, has no rewind button, cannot be simulated, is beyond the reach of any organization, group, or institution, and treats everyone the same much like gravity, the speed of light, or any other physical law does. Quote, 
Finally, Bitcoin doesn't care about what you think. It doesn't care about anything. What you think doesn't matter. That is the ultimate power of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is like a force of nature. You must conform to ethical standards of behavior in Bitcoin-mediated world or starve, since the option of violence is taken off the table. Buton, Bitcoin is not democratic, 2014. Upon the substrate, society can be rebuilt, and enlightenment values we've lost in the maelstrom of the modern state can once again guide us toward a life of meaning, a life of progress, and a life of prosperity. With that in mind, what about the walls and structures we build atop it? Let's now turn our attention toward a series of factors that need to be addressed if we're to establish a more robust, truthful, and sound world. Incentives matter. One of the simplest and most basic axioms of economics is that you will get more of what which is subsidized or incentivized and less of which is decentivized. Democracy is bound by its own aspirations to cushion everyone and create a safety net. In doing so, society must cater for the lowest common denominator of human across almost every dimension. On the surface, it's a noble-sounding idea. Give everyone the same rights, give everyone a voice, give everyone a say, remove variable risk, consequences, or danger by cushioning or covering it up. But, in practice, it's a completely different thing. It creates all the wrong incentives. Democracy ignores relative economic value or input, giving the same voice to everyone. Democracy gives lazy people and parasites a legal mechanism and environment via which to feed on more productive people. Democracy makes politicking the primary survival strategy, not productivity. Democracy gives everyone the dangerous idea that they have a say in another's private affairs, places private property second to public property. In short, democracy caters for the lowest common denominator in society and thus incentivizes people to continue to lower their standards in a perpetual downward spiral, a true tragedy of the commons. Socialism and communism are similar, except instead of just creating the environment or parasitic behavior and incentivizing the lowering of standards, they actually enforce equality by making sure everyone becomes the lowest, worst version of themselves. They're just more extreme, brutal, and violent ways to get to the exact same end. Obviously worse, but in some sense, better because people can more quickly see it in revolt. Democracy is far more insidious. Nevertheless, we have hope. On a Bitcoin standard, productivity, competition, savings, accurate decision-making, efficiency, efficacy, economization, quality, prudence, patience, profit, responsibility, work, cooperation, and longer time horizons are incentivized. Wastage, spending, consumption, mistakes, losses, sin, theft, violence, risk, dependence, and high time preferences are disincentivized. This happens at the individual and local level now, despite how early we are, and despite all of the madness, noise, scams, ransoms, theft, and the like in and around the broader Bitcoin industry. The strength of its incentives and disincentives will only increase as we transition beyond the interregnum. In the meantime, as I've discussed, in Fire Bitcoin Teleportation, the great transition will not be a walk in the park. It will not be pretty, and the incentives will be skewed toward doing everything and anything to survive as the systems of the old dissolve, dismantle, and destroy themselves. None of the fallout will be a function of or a flaw in Bitcoin, but will occur by virtue of its incompatibility with the legacy financial system, the legacy internet, and the legacy legislative law. Unfortunately, this is the cold turkey withdrawal we as a species must endure in order to detoxify our corrupt, dysfunctional civilization. This is our rite of passage, and while it will be painful, the sooner we're done with it, the better. The alternative is to remain on the current course and slowly construct our own gulags, an unwise option. The question then follows, what sort of incentives do we want for society? Once on a Bitcoin standard, especially if Bitcoin already naturally incentivizes behavior we deem desirable, the answer is simple, but perhaps not easy. Don't touch or play with the incentives too much. 
Let nature run its course and people learn for themselves. I believe the world must fragment into city-states because A. Local-scale governance seems to be where optimal economic performance will lie. And B. It's more probable for 100,000 people to have similar values than it is for 100 million. This implies a patchwork of territories with a unique and varied set of values, principles, customs, norms, cultures, and therefore incentives. To the question that then follows, what should they incentivize? My answer is, I have no idea, each to their own. One of many advantages and beauties of a fragmented, decentralized patchwork of city-states spread across the globe is that multiple living experiments can operate. Some territories may want to incentivize commercial real estate and become hubs for logistics, offices, industry, etc. Others may want to incentivize leisure and the pristine, untouched natural environment in their territory, and thus instead disincentivize industry. Each method will have its own advantages and disadvantages. The difference is that on a Bitcoin standard, economic consequence cannot be escaped. Poor incentive structures will be punished, not by some authority, but through losses and poverty. Good incentive structures will prosper economically and socially. For example, territories that ensure private property rights are upheld in exchange for a transparent membership fee should, in theory, lead to more people wanting to participate in demand increasing, thus leading to a higher quality of member and, if desired, quantity also. This brings me to the next consideration, the law. The law. The law, then, is solely the organization of individual rights that existed before law. Frederick Bastiat, The Law, 1850. If you've not yet read Frederick Bastiat's 1850 classic, The Law, then please make sure you do. It should be a mandatory reading for every and any aspirating territory operator or governance provider on a future Bitcoin standard. Bastiat makes a short, compelling, and logical airtight case for the law being limited to nothing more than the preservation of private property rights. That is it. That is all. Bastiat defines the law as a collective force, and as such, if it extends beyond its mandate to protect private property, then it by definition becomes the use of force for other means, which are ultimately infringements on private property rights the very thing law exists to preserve. Quote, It is very evident that the proper aim of law is to oppose the fatal tendency to plunder with the powerful obstacle of collective force, that all its measure should be in favor of property and against plunder. End quote. Frederick Bastia, The Law, 1850. The beautiful thing about Bitcoin is that private property rights can be protected by the immutable laws of mathematics instead of depending on mutable laws of human agreement. For the first time in history, we have wealth that nobody can take, assuming that one's cryptographic keys are appropriately secured. This lowering in the cost of defense transforms the returns on violence to a degree never before possible. With that formation, we can then begin to think about contracts and contract law in meat space, a contract is a mutually agreed upon set of terms or rules of a game, and these will definitely vary from territory to territory. Contracts can be used as a way to establish certain incentives or disincentives, encode benefits, define limitations, and can in a sense act like modern legislative laws but remain consistent with the limitation of law to the preservation of private property rights. When thinking about the contracts we want to establish, the question then becomes which are most in line with that which is just, or another way to think about it, is commerciality. Contracts and relationships between entities and parties will toward more cooperative and mutually beneficial terms because of Bitcoin's superior properties. You only get paid if you deliver the service. Forcefully taking everyone's Bitcoin is too expensive. And you may get away with it a few times, but it's not a viable long-term strategy. This is where reputation comes in, which I believe will play a large role in the future of contracts, their desirability, and their enforceability. Either way, these will all be underpinned by the law's restriction to the preservation of private property rights. There's very little I can add to this section that Bastiat has not covered in his incredible piece. 
As such, I will leave you with a final few paragraphs from Bastiat's work, which are key to understanding how we should behave as we transition into a world of microstates on a Bitcoin standard. What is law? What ought it be? What is its domain? What are its limits? Where, in fact, does the pejorative of the legislator stop? I have no hesitation in answering. Law is common force organized to prevent injustice. In short, law is justice. It is not true that the legislator has absolute power over the persons and property, since they pre-exist, and his work is only to secure them from injury. It is not true that the mission of the law is to regulate our consciences, our ideas, our will, our education, our sentiments, our works, our exchanges, our gifts, our enjoyments. Its mission is to prevent the rights of one form interfering with those of another in any one of these things. This is so true that, as a friend of mine once remarked to me, to say that the aim of the law is to cause justice to reign is to use an expression that is not rigorously exact. It ought to be said, the aim of the law is to prevent injustice from reigning. In fact, it is not justice that has an existence of its own. It is injustice. The one results from the absence of the other. End quote. Frederick Bastiat, The Law, 1850. Autonomy. Beyond the topic of law, we ask ourselves about autonomy and responsibility. The degeneration of individual autonomy we've seen occur over the last two years has not only mired us in endless group identity politics, but it has eroded the very responsibility that makes individuals sovereign in their own right. Autonomy is critical for this most central of Enlightenment values. This does not mean we do away with groups, associations, tribes, or even nations, although I believe the latter's days are somewhat numbered. What it means is the autonomy of the individual comes first, foremost, and before any form of fraternity. Once again, I quote Bastiat, quote, We can assure them that what we repudiate is not natural organization, but forced organization. It is not free association, but the forms of association that they would impose upon us. It is not spontaneous fraternity, but legal fraternity. It is not providential solidarity, but artificial solidarity, which is only an unjust displacement of responsibility. Frederick Bastiat, The Law, 1850. The law's role is to protect the individual from incursions by the group, not to create groups that have the legal right to plunder individuals or smaller groups. Here, once again, we see modern political institutions of all kinds fail miserably. Democracy assumes you're too stupid to know what to do with your own wealth, and in order to survive, you must elect some representative to pool everyone's resources and spend it as they see fit. It's as if you and your family are incapable of deciding for yourselves what you want and need, and that if there's no legislator written up by these paragons of virtue and government, that free individuals would neither feed, clothe, educate, or house themselves by their own volition. Like sheep without a shepherd, humanity would be lost, left to wander into oblivion. But if these sheep only got together and voted, they would somehow choose the right shepherd who could guide them to the promised land. So along came universal suffrage, giving every so-called incompetent individual who was earlier told they cannot know what to do for themselves with the wealth and resources they've personally acquired a vote to elect somebody who can know for sure what must be done with everyone's resources. The circular logic is neither profitable nor economical, and in the face of a sound economic reality, will shatter like a cheap, fragile ceramic that it is. It will ultimately lead to the same end, autonomy and individual responsibility, not just because it's better, not just because it's more just, moral, or desirable, but because it's the only model of human existence that is anti-fragile enough to adapt to the evolutionary pressure of the complexity that is human society. Autonomy will win out in the end whether we choose to move in that direction consciously and preserve the capital we've produced over the millennia or this entire centrally planned edifice crashes atop of us and we have to start from scratch. I sincerely hope for the former because the latter is an unnecessary waste 
we have Bitcoin, we can now move away from the political end of the spectrum and back toward living in accord with the natural order. Capitalism. A central theme in the redesign of society will involve the movement away from politics and towards capitalism. In the upcoming book, co-authored by myself and Mark Moss, The Uncommunist Manifesto, we make the case for capitalism being the organic process that occurs in all forms of evolution or progress. Capitalism is merely the production of order from chaos through the use of time, energy, and natural resources. Its forcing functions are efficiency and efficacy, and it uses experimentation and competition as drivers. There is no escaping capitalism. It exists in all forms of politics, in all forms of social organizations, and even in biology and ecology. Living Things and Capitalism's experimental method of transforming chaos into order are both, by definition, anti-anthropic. Once again, Bitcoin changes the game forever. There has never been a phenomenon other than life itself that is raw, pure capitalism in action. Bitcoin just is, and like a law of nature, we use it, interact with it, and build a relationship with it towards ends we deem meaningful and valuable. It's the catalyst that moves us to the left-hand side of the real spectrum. Admin break to describe the picture below it is a scale, capitalism being on the left, politics being on the right. Underneath, capitalism, freedom, organic, Bitcoin, bottom-up, independence, natural order, individualism, emergent. Under politics of the left, which is all on the same side, communism, socialism, democracy, top-down, control, fiat, decree. On the right side of the politics is rigged regulations, authoritarianism, that is conservatism, cronyism, fascism. Back to the article. Capitalism reduces uncertainty. Capitalism plays many roles, but one of its most important is the reduction in future uncertainties, a role it can play far better than any promise by a government. Free markets reduce uncertainty via the creation, sale, and purchase of products and services that individuals need, which they could not otherwise do, create, or produce themselves. Furthermore, because these transactions enable the creation of excess wealth, we are able to do what no other species on the planet can, store the wealth in a unit of account for future uses, i.e., we can store purchasing power, labor, across both space and time. The key element here is, of course, a money that can perform these functions well, Bitcoin is once again perfect across both dimensions, space and time. The certainty that governments give us through cheap words and broken promises pales in comparison to the certainty of savings, particularly savings that cannot be confiscated. Everyone needs to eat, everyone needs to trade, and beyond every political order, there exists economic reality. It's inescapable. The free markets of capitalism and their organic matching of supply and demand is how we as individuals move toward greater certainty, not politics. We can finally do away with these incessant cycles of political madness and decay, the Titler cycle being an interesting one to note. Admin break to describe the picture. It's a circular image that shows everything leading to itself, bondage, people oppose conditions, faith, Search for unity, deep moral gatherings, courage, people fight for freedom, liberty, prosperity, and freedom are achieved, abundance, focus turns to material things, selfishness, it's all about me and my stuff, complacency, entitlement, and self-absorption, apathy, personal responsibility lost, it's not my fault, freedom centralized, independence controlled, dependence, point of no return, Government achieves complete control. Bondage. Hierarchies are necessary to the proper function of any system because they enable selection and prioritization. We can argue and debate about style, form, and approach, but much like gravity, we cannot avoid hierarchies. The question boils down to what kind do we want? 1. Hierarchies of fiat. 2. Hierarchies of competence. The former are political animals designed top-down and enforced by decree. 
They are not the function of who can do what, but who knows who and who can sell what to the most people. The latter are emergent phenomena that neither require nor recognize empty decrees. They form organically as their participants organize themselves into complementary relationships. They are the basis of all meritocratic forms of organization and will be central to the way the world is likely to operate on a Bitcoin standard, which we shall explore in part four of this series. I discuss the topic of hierarchy in more depth in part one of the Jordan Peterson series I began writing in 2021, Bitcoin, Hierarchy, and Territory. Quote, the government consists of a gang of men exactly like you and me. They have, taking one with another, no special talent for the business of government. They have only a talent for getting and holding office. Their principal device to that end is to search out groups who pant or pine for something they can't get and to promise to give it to them. Nine times out of ten, that promise is worth nothing. The tenth time is made good by looting A to satisfy B. In other words, government is a broker and pillage, and every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods. End quote. H.L. Mencken. Once again, we see incompatibility with democracy. In fact, not only incompatibility, but a complete inversion of hierarchies of competence. It places the lemmings and parasites in charge of the natural leaders and producers and the slaves over the masters. Democracy is fundamentally rule by the incompetent over the competent. Scalability. The next area of consideration is scale. How large can the business of governance grow before it becomes economically infeasible? What are the economies of scale and diseconomies of scale? These are incredibly important questions, scarcely asked in an age of nation-state, where the push for larger governments and even global government seem to be the panacea for all collective ailments. Either Bitcoin will buck this trend, or its own ever-increasing fragility will force it to shatter into a million pieces. I, of course, prefer the former because we have a chance to preserve some of the hard-earned capital our forebears and ancestors built. We know that democracy cannot scale because the more the size of population grows, the more difficult it is for everyone to have skin in the game, values to align, expenses to be managed, bureaucracy to be restrained, individuals to be differentiated, merit to be rewarded. Equality replaces excellence, dependence, and entitlements replace independence, rights replace responsibilities, politics replace productivity, macro replaces micro, and empty suits replace entrepreneurs. The same goes for all forms of larger-scale government, whether republics, communist states, or fascist states. Quote, Alas, you can detect the degradation of aesthetics of buildings when architects are judged by other architects. So the current rebellion against bureaucrats, whether in D.C. or Brussels, simply comes from the public detection of a simple principle. The more micro, the more visible one's skills. To use the language of complexity theory, expertise is scale-dependent. And, ironically, the more complex the world becomes, the more the role of macro-deciders Empty suits with disproportionate impact should be reduced. We should decentralize so that actions are taken locally and visibly, not centralized as we have been doing. Nassim Tlaib, Skin in the Game. Bitcoin fixes this once again by virtue of reintroduction of economic consequence. When real economic cost is associated with actions both at the individual and collective level, we think twice about what we do. I believe this will place natural upper bounds on the size of both governance and big business, and instead of centralizing decision-making into the hands of macro actors, it will push it toward real entrepreneurs, producers, and service providers with skin in the game. So what will the future look like? I personally keep coming back to the commercially viable, economically sound patchwork city-states run by CEO kings, and my guess is that they will only grow in size to the extent they can be adequately defended and funded. I don't believe this looks anything like modern democracy, medieval feudal states, or any other incarnation of the state. It will be something new. There will be little room for error, arbitrary hierarchies or bureaucracies, and on a Bitcoin standard, there are no bailouts. Operators will by definition have skin in the game, and start contrast to anything that's come before, especially present-day democracies. 
return on violence. Quote, now labor being in itself a pain, a man being naturally inclined to avoid pain, it follows, and history proves it, that wherever plunder is less burdensome than labor, it prevails, and neither religion nor morality can in this case prevent it from prevailing. When does plunder cease then? When it becomes more burdensome and more dangerous than labor. End quote. Frederick Bastia, The Law, 1850. The cost of a defense and the cost of offense potential for damage inflicted is a calculus that runs in the subconscious mind of every living territorial being. This idea of returns on violence was popularized in the 1997 book by James Dale Davidson and Lord William Rees Mogg, which, if you're a reader of mine, you're assuredly familiar with. The sovereign individual analyzed history through the lens of returns on violence and postulated that the rise of the digital realm alongside mathematically sound cryptographic means of private property and wealth preservation would mean that the locus of control and decision-making in the postmodern era would swing back into the realm of the individual, the sovereign individual, in fact. This poignant, far-sighted book is a must-read because it was able to forecast not only the mega-political changes we're seeing in society today, but also the most important aspect of it all, the creation and adoption of something like Bitcoin. Perhaps the only critique of the book, other than the Y2K alarmism, in the beginning is that more emphasis could have been placed on the significance of a digital bearer instrument as money. But this would be harsh, for hindsight is 2020, and such foresight on the part of the authors is likely unmatched. Bitcoin once again changes everything. On a long enough time scale, the calculus of all living territorial beings will make trends towards cooperation over coercion. Bitcoin is the answer to Bastiat's question of when shall plunder cease? Yes, the risk of having your home, farm, food, business, and physical property confiscated will always exist. But being in a position where your money can perish with you changes the possibility of profitability on the part of the aggressor. Furthermore, because of Bitcoin's digital nature, it's impossible for aggressors to know how much you do have and accurately measure the potential cost of attacking you. I know this all sounds sci-fi, and of course, during the transition, it won't be like this for most Bitcoin holders. What I am talking about is the long-term trend. I have no idea when or how this plays out, but specific factors point to what? Borders. How will borders, welfare, and immigration work? Once again, these are problems that will be solved by the market and by operators of said territories. I believe there will be a diverse approach and an opportunity to learn from internal and external experimentation. My feeling is that we will have a blend of reputation and webs of trust as a replacement for nation-state passports, probably alongside some sort of either multi-sig Bitcoin deposit functioning as a security deposit, or maybe a signed message proving you have control of a certain amount of Bitcoin before you can enter. I believe that state welfare will over time be completely eradicated and replaced with more functional, efficient, and effective private philanthropy. I believe that families, communities, and tribes will once again don the responsibility to care for disadvantaged people and will do so with a higher degree of care, insight, and love than any ridiculous, poorly funded, no-skin-in-the-game state institute could ever do. With the removal of welfare will come the desire for immigrants because to provide services, territory operators will require workers, and with multiple territory providers, we'll have more competition for workers, and we will likely even see transferability of skills and experience across these jurisdictions as leagues and alliances form. The pointless discrimination based on race and nationality will also dissolve because territory operators will see you as a customer and not as a foreign alien looking to leech off of the state. So many things change as the world comes to terms with the specter of Bitcoin's economic gravity, consequence, and reality. Risk and skin in the game. Inequality is normal to a degree, but is exasperated when skin in the game is systematically removed and corruption runs rampant. That's why Bitcoin is so powerful. As an incorruptible money, Bitcoin has changed the game. Metrics can also be gamed when economics is subject to politics. 
a politician can load the system with debt to improve growth and GDP and let his successor deal with the delayed results. He can make deals with the central bank to bail him and his friends out of bad decisions, and he can unilaterally increase taxes because we're all in this together. The problem, as we've discussed ad nauseum, is the fact that no politician, or very few, suffer the consequences of their decisions. In fact, very often, the worse the character, the greater the theft or payout in the end. When you can jump off of a cliff and somebody else dies in your stead, you will have no reservations about continually jumping off of a cliff without a parachute. You live in a Super Mario land where the game just restarts. Unfortunately for the rest of us, because we live in the real world, we must bear the burden and foot the bill for our representatives' stupidity and incessant parachuteless cliff diving. This removal of risk and skin in the game is a bit of a historical anomaly. In prior epics, we had guillotines, daggers, poison, lords, nobles, generals, and greater concentration of power, where corruption often led to usurpation or removal from the throne. In this sense, monarchies are far superior to democracies, and I believe the essence of this idea, personal accountability, will once again emerge on a Bitcoin standard. We will explore this in the next and, for now, final installment of the series. For now, the spirit of much of this essay, I would like to close out with one final quote from Bastiat. I echo this stance and believe that on a Bitcoin standard, the reality of this assertion will one day come true. The future private property owners, or soon-to-come territory operators, will have to contend with the reality of footing the bill for their experimentation. Mistakes will surely be made. Collateral damage will surely occur. But what's most important is that the trend will tend toward improvement or correction. It's only in this way that the human race can progress and evolve. Quote, You must observe that I am not contending against their right to invent social combinations or propagate them, to recommend them and to try them upon themselves at their own expense and risk but I do not dispute their right to impose them upon us through the medium of the law, that is, by force and by public taxes. Frederick Bastiat, The Law, 1850. Thank you once again, and I will see you in the fourth and final installment of Bitcoin is Not Democratic. All right, that's part three wrapped up. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I told you guys in the intro that I would talk a little bit uh, and expound on kind of what I think in terms of what's going to happen uh, as Bitcoin is adopted and kind of the transitionary process. So in the in the process of transition, we're already there. Um, we are in a transition process because Bitcoin can't be stopped. And you're starting to see around the world places like ExxonMobil are starting to burn off extra gas uh, to you know start mining Bitcoin. You see Russia is now going to start um, selling their their petroleum and their energy in Bitcoin. This is a big deal. If you understand the petrol dollar, you understand that most of what gives the uh, the dollar any any sort of value whatsoever is the fact that there's energy that's attached to it, right? Like we pay the Middle East a lot of money, uh, especially places like Saudi Arabia and UAE. And, you know, it, it's just it's just a matter of fact. Like this, it's energy that's always driven um, humans, right? Like it, it, what we've seen over the past, I don't know, since the, kind of the 1950s, I guess, especially, you know, Operation Ajax in the Middle East with it around, um, the first CIA coup, if you're not aware of that one, go read up on it. It's really, it's, it's fascinating to, to understand the history of all of this, but with, you know, Russia coming online for energy and literally like, this is maybe one of the most important points to make is you have energy from a major power in the world now being valued in Bitcoin, being traded in Bitcoin, that is a monster step to a, for an energy for energy companies to be using it to mine Bitcoin and for countries to be selling energy in it. Um, I can't tell you. I mean, the transition is here now. Politically, specifically, like what this is going to look like, it's going to look like a, a couple things. You're going to see um, a lot of major 
types of organizations like the United States, like different banking cabals, like different industries, you know, what I call the murder cult, they're they're going to push back uh, because they want this to unwind as slowly as possible so that they can get their best position within the Bitcoin community as well, right? Like it's just, it's, it's natural. This is, you know, they're, they're looking to preserve their energy, their, their time, their effort. And that's what Bitcoin does more perfectly than any, than any money that we've ever had, right? Like that's, that's, that's why this is happening. So you're also going to have idiots, um, like the, you know, the, 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 the Joe Bidens out there, uh, come out and say, you know, nonsensical things, right? Now, what he says in person, obviously mostly scripted these days, uh, what is coming through on social media is complete uh, PR team, you know, nonsense. Obviously, they don't understand economics to save their life. And even if they did, they wouldn't be putting out the, 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 the truth, because they're looking to get ahead of you as well, right? Like that, that's literally what most of politics is. And, and obviously understanding through this reading exactly how it works in quote unquote a democratic republic is, is, is insane, right? So you're going to see a lot of people who are Bitcoiners villainized by the, the power hungry elites. And it's ridiculous because what they're doing in the background is probably the same thing you're doing. You're just being honest about it and they're trying to, you know, get ahead of you. So to criminalize it, to, to talk of, you know, the sanctioning and scaring and uh, making sure that people are avoiding this so that they can get a, a better spot, right? They can buy in it at a lower dollar amount. It makes their dollars that are losing value every day go further. This is what these monsters in power across the board do. The elites are trying to scare you out of things like Bitcoin. Look at, I mean, look at the world. Like they're talking about, they've been talking about rising sea levels forever. You know, obviously global warming and climate change and all this other bullshit. And you, and you see, you know, what happens, right? Like some people get scared and they don't want to live near the coast. I'm not saying it's everybody because a lot of people don't believe their bullshit anymore. But in terms of these same people who who carry around the mantra for, you know, green peace and, you know, all this other stuff. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, live in a balance with nature. Like I I really think you should. And I think obviously being independent is a very, you know, very real thing in my life as somebody who does homesteading. Like I think it's very important. However, the idea that the sea levels are rising while people like Barack Obama and a bunch of the liberal elite live on the fucking coast and buy more and more property on the coast at premium dollars. I mean, we're talking like millions and millions and millions of dollars. They're full of shit. You know, their actions obviously speak louder than their words. They're not really scared of of you know the the creeping sea level please same thing with this kind of stuff right they're, they're just trying to scare you away from it so that they have a better position in it and that they're not surrounded by you know the the common man the the plebs right like we're, they don't want to be plebs so at any rate um i think we're going to go through this transition period. And I, this transition period, especially politically, is going to have such a decentralization effect. And, and we're already seeing it. Like, listen, I, I'd, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you guys. Like, this is obviously a huge part of what I'm going to be doing in, in terms of running for governor here in Georgia. Right? Like, I, I truly believe that the more I can get out and inform and instruct and educate people on Bitcoin and its uses and its decentralization effect in terms of its freeing self-sovereignty effect, we're going to see a, a push. We're going to see people bend. We're going to see people in powerful positions down here in Georgia start to move that way. And you're going to see this across the country. You're going to see this around the world. You know, there is a, there is a, a dying 
and I mean literally, dying class of politicians. I mean, you look at a lot of these people who are in the upper echelons of the U.S. government right now, and they're literally dying. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer. I mean, who's the who's the like the ninety year old uh, Barbara Boxer or whatever the hell? Or I, I, at any rate. There's a, there's a lot of them, and they're going out. And there's another generation that's sitting here right around, I don't know, the, the millennial mark, right? You know, for me, high, you know, the I should say high 40s, low 40s, high 30s, uh, you know, in, in terms of years. And um, they've got some different ideas. They've got freeing ideas. They've got, and I'm not saying it's everybody that's my age, but I'm telling you, the people that are going to make a big push and a big difference um, in with, you know, very bold messaging and new ideas based in economic truth in Austrian. Like this is a, this is amazing to see all of these Keynesians trying to talk about, you know, nonsensical shit like MMT, right? Bitcoin absolutely crushes anything and everything that they've ever put out there as fact, as their schooling, as their solutions for economics. It destroys Keynesian economics without even trying. They can't compete with it. You know, their centralized idea of just spending into oblivion, the boom-bust cycle of Keynesian economics, cannot compete, cannot do anything in terms of, I don't know, combating Bitcoin, which, let's face it, Bitcoin is un funded in terms of its uh, its messaging, in terms of adoption. And you juxtapose what it is and you know how how much it's grown with, you know, and I mean let's face it, you know, it started, you know, basically in two thousand nine, right? And now we're talking about forty eight thousand dollars per Bitcoin. It's done this organically. It, it purely organically it has to because it's all it's all cryptographic it all has to, it's all decentralized cryptographic you know algorithm that doesn't give a shit about who you are what your politics are like it doesn't care about any of this kind of stuff so for a for a, a paradigm shift for a new economy for a new type of money to just absolutely be destroying the old paradigm that is funded to the to the trillion dollars trillions of dollars a year poured into propping up this archaic democratic system and it's just bitcoin's just gaining speed every day like these people are going to fall off. It's going to, and here's the thing is, you know, this, you know, very slowly and then suddenly, like we're kind of getting to the suddenly part now, right? Where it's the old system, the fiat system that's just crushing people, that's crushing their bank accounts, that's crushing, you know, their, you know, what, what they pay at the pump, everything. That's, that stuff isn't going to be cool very much longer. And when Bitcoin starts to trend, and I don't think it's even trending yet. I don't think that 1% of the population of Earth really knows Bitcoin. You know, there, there are maybe not even 1% invested in Bitcoin or owns any of it at all. There's a very small part that actually really understands it, can explain it, and possibly teach it. I'm telling you, like, when this starts to really hit, you know, mass Bitcoinization, Hold on to your butts, man. Like, it's going to get fucking nuts. It's going to get crazy. So anyway, the transition, I think, is going to be, you know, very sudden for a lot of people. And they're going to go, oh, my God, you know, i got to learn about all this kind of stuff. Listen, you know, great opportunity for you to create a a business out of this. And, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't think about it myself. Like, this is a, a golden, golden opportunity, maybe an orange opportunity to go out there and possibly learn this kind of stuff to where you can teach it and help people get out of fiat and start changing the way this whole thing's work. It's, it's going to drive, you know, for kind of bottom line up front now, I think it's going to drive decentralization 
across the board. I think it's going to drive decentralization down to your local level because here's what's going to happen. As these banks continue to collapse and there is there, the economic collapse is here and it's coming and it's it's around us all the time. You know, you're living through it and you're alive and you're okay and I, I'm glad for those things. But understand, you you're living through the world's biggest economic collapse that has ever happened. Now, you know, for us, you know, to, to see this, to be part of it, to understand it, to be out front of it, what are you going to do with all this information? What are you going to get prepared for? Like, what is going to happen? Well, banks in your area are probably going to fail, right? Because at some point, if people aren't going to work or there's not, like, the economy's just trashed, right? Supply chain breakdowns, which, let's let's face it, man, like, they're trying. Char- you know, uh, what is this? Uh, Charles Schwab, not Schwab, no, geez, Pete, um, Klaus Schwab. <laughs> Sorry, guys, sometimes it, it slips my mind. Of uh, The uh, World Economic Forum, just on record the other day, saying they're, we're preparing for energy shortages, for mass food shortages, all, all these things. Like, this is going to happen. Well, who was saying this back in 2020, right? Who's been saying that, hey, man, if you screw around with the global economic chain that bad things are going to happen. Like you have no idea the unintended consequences that are going to start coming. Anyway, we're there, we're living through it now. And when banks can't get their money, when banks can't, you know, get their money for your mortgages and and cars or whatever, what's going to happen there? That's the, the politics is going to get real, real close to home because you and your sheriff and your, uh, police departments, they're going to try to put you and them at even further odds for evictions, right? For, you know, restructuring your loan, possibly moving your loans from dollars into Bitcoin. Don't ever do that, man. There's going to be so much damn money out there pretty soon as they continue to print it. Like you're going to be able to pay your house off uh, in a GIF right? Like that's just the way the world's going to work when it's, you know, when you've got wheelbarrows of cash, um, you know, paying off a house, paying off cars, paying off debt, paying off, it's gonna, it's gonna happen quick. And the thing is, is even when they continue to try, right? Like they're going to continue to try to get law enforcement to come after you and your neighbors and your community. Um, when the banks are the one who manipulated everything from the very beginning, fuck these people. Have a, have, get people together, start talking about this, start getting your sheriffs on board. And here's what needs to really happen. In politics at a local level, you guys need to start talking about, hey man, you need to see the picture, right? Like at some point, if you guys can want to continue to service, quote unquote, this community with, you know, taking bad people off of our streets, we've got a proposal for you. You know, this is a time where you start introducing you know, ideas to these guys that don't know fucking economics. Guarantee you. They have no idea. I mean, they're still busting people for cannabis, like 300 pounds of cannabis in, in Georgia and go, yeah, this is awesome. Start introducing them to the ideas that, hey, the banks have manipulated everything. They are the bad guys. Your community of peaceful people who no longer have jobs or whose businesses have been destroyed, that is something that you guys um, need to be prepared for. And... You know, it's not that you're all going to be around after this, but sheriff and some deputies, maybe, you know, depending on, you know, how big your community is, maybe we can start putting together a fund in Satoshi's so that we can pay you guys and we can pay you for the job that you're doing. Now, if you don't do your damn job, right, where if you start harassing peaceful people, if you're, if you're screwing around with, you know, people for cannabis, I'm not going to pay you anymore. I'll pay you a really nice salary. You know, we'll get together and come up with a really nice salary if you're going to go after the the really bad people, if you'll keep the state and the feds out of our community. That's what we'll pay you for. But if you're going to work for the banks and you're going to be at odds with this community, well, get ready. Game on. Because I love my family, I love my neighbors, I love my community, and if they're peaceful and you are the people that are manipulating and crashing systems that have done this for 
let's face it, over 100 years, and you're on their side, boy, you guys make really easy targets. I'm going to tell you right now, this is not the side of history you want to be on. Not in America. Not, <laughs> especially not here in Georgia in the South, man. Holy hell. Um, so start having those conversations. But at any rate, I think that's, um, we're all wrapping. We're already at a, an hour and five minutes. Oh my gosh. Time flies when you're having a good time. At any rate, um, I will try to get out the part four, which is not going to be the final part. Um, Alexander's already written part five because the guy is just on fire for this kind of stuff. So at any rate, um, we'll uh, try to get that out to you guys, hopefully by the end of the week, if my voice permits. And if not, then it'll be early next week. But uh, until then, thank you guys for tuning in. I love you. I need you. Peace. Um, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff.